there's a fairly romantic notion of what it's like to run a small family farm. It is sobering pretty fast once you actually get out there and see that it's not all just kind of like romantic Instagram pictures of like being around pretty plants and eating delicious food. It's, um, yeah, just being beholden to do something, whether you feel like it that day or not. If you're not feeling well, if you want to stay out late, it's like your life is really governed by your farm. I had just landed in San Francisco from an early morning flight and I was immediately struggling to find my bearings. My first task was to get a rental car and leave the mecca of tech for a small quaint farm some 90 minutes away. I'm not really used to driving anymore, let alone solo, so it was a long and lonely trip from San Francisco to the town of Winters, California. As I struggled to stay awake, Google Maps led me to a Walgreens pharmacy along the way. I went straight for the drink section to pick up a sugar-free energy drink to keep me alert. I then stumbled into the snack aisle and deliberated over a slew of protein bars and cookies. It's ironic. I was fueling my body with these very processed products that run counter to the origins of food, which emanates from the ground and is often immediately edible in its raw, unprocessed state. As I hopped back into the driver's seat, I was uncertain of what the next few hours would yield. After a series of turns on a back road and the passing of a crew of cyclists, I pulled up to Namu Farm. Just an hour and a half ago, I was side by side with Ubers and billboards for tech startups. Here, it was quiet, peaceful, almost eerie, despite the abundance of bright sun beating down overhead. After searching for a sign of human life, I finally bumped into Kristen Leach. In all honesty, I had no idea who I was meeting and what they looked like. As one of Kristen's partners, Dennis Lee of Namu, has said, Kristen does not fit the profile of a typical American farmer. He couldn't be more right. My name is Kristen Leach, and I am a farmer in California. Kristen heads up Namu Farm, a joint initiative between herself and Namu Gaji, a modern Asian-American restaurant run by three brothers that also includes several sister restaurants known as Namu Stonepot. Namu Stonepot would play host to our Macon and Intertrend Unexpected Connections dinner that evening. Here at Namu Farm, they supply both Namu's various restaurants, as well as a growing number of chefs. The farm has a unique angle, focusing on various East Asian crops. These crops are critical to a community that finds comfort in linking authentic food with identity and history. For Kristen, she was adopted into an American family after being born in Daegu, South Korea. Like many Korean-American adoptees, including Macon co-founder Alex Mayland, Food represents a stepping stone to getting acquainted with a culture that feels both foreign and close. Over the course of the next two hours, I would have all my curiosities around food culture, farming, and the relationship between food and identity answered through Kristen's sharp insights. For somebody who spends time willingly in isolation, these moments devoid of interaction and even music allows one to really crystallize their thoughts. How did you originally get into the world of farming? I just had an opportunity to work on small scale farms when I was younger in Washington, where I was living. And yeah, I really liked it. I liked being outdoors. I liked working with plants. And then at a certain point, just decided to 
try to apply myself and take it a little bit more seriously. So mm-hmm. maybe you can talk a little bit about where we are right now. So we're in a town called Winters, which is in um, sort of northwestern part of the Sacramento Valley. And it's about an hour, I guess, outside of the Bay Area. But it's really hot. We're in a really beautiful kind of watershed along a creek called Puta Creek. So it's just really rich soil here, just really beautiful landscape. So over the course of, I guess, this morning, I've been following Kristen a little bit through her I guess, daily process. And what I found most interesting was the way you approach this. It's not mechanical. It's very much a relationship between you and what you're doing versus automation, anything like that. So maybe you can talk a little bit about why this type of approach is what you're interested in, why you've decided to go about it this way. From a selfish standpoint, it was just something that gives me a series of really robust relationships because I get to know all the plants that are growing on my farm in this really close way because I just observe them in ways that are like intentional and unintentional. I get to sort of just get to notice things that are not about just like purely visual acuity. And I think in terms of being like, you know, a commercial farmer, it translates into into the quality of the produce as well, just because you're noticing how the quality changes or how it's not just like there's four seasons, there's each week and each day can feel like a different season depending on how the plant responds to what's happening. Kristen is often working in the fields alone. What I witnessed was this zen-like approach where the repeatable actions of picking are met with deep thinking around uncertainty. The uncertainty is often elements out of her control, whether it's pests, the weather, or simply figuring out the looming socioeconomic challenges of the food supply. This results in a rather intimate relationship with her crops, which like the perilla leaf, are far more complex than just being voiceless plants. Yeah, what are things that you start to pick up on that are beyond just maybe the obvious aesthetical outcomes? Mm -hmm. For instance, like the herb we're sitting by, the Korean perilla, you know, it's a really broad leaf. And so by nine o'clock, you know, by the time you arrived, it was already quite hot out. And so with large leaf plants like that, their conservation method is to kind of shut down the pores on the surface of their leaves so that they don't transpire water, which both saves water in the ground and it prevents the plant from being too stressed. Um, So when we're picking that herb, we just would never pick that past like nine o'clock in the morning because of that reason of knowing kind of what the plant is experiencing in relationship to environmental factors. And what that translates to is better flavor because it's like if we pick it at the right time, its essential oils are kind of all circulating. The flavor is a lot stronger. um, And then it also keeps in a refrigerator much better. And so if we pick it at the wrong time and its vascular system essentially is trying to shut down and go dormant, then the leaf just can't really recover. Like we could dunk it in ice water. It just won't be as robust as it could be. From a flavor perspective, right? I think ultimately a lot of people are, when they're buying stuff, they're buying it because it tastes good. And yeah. whatnot. How does the current, I guess, farming system prevent maximum flavor and whatnot? Like for mm-hmm. someone that is maybe mm-hmm. less familiar with how that whole process works and like off the vine ripening or whatnot. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think because of how industrialized and globalized our economy is at this point, we and how cheap people expect food to be. Mechanization has played such a huge role in shaping our agricultural practices. And so a lot of plant breeding 
really revolves around what is going to keep the longest, like what's going to be able to be shipped across the country. So it's for these networks that are possibly sending fruit and vegetables thousands of miles before it even sits in a refrigerator. Um, and so you have examples like Eastern Shipper, Western Shipper, Long Shelf Life cantaloupes, where it's basically trying to get a muskmelon that can sit off the vine for eight weeks at, at times. Um, so when you think about just what that means in terms of good flavor is like the production of sugars and these interesting kinds of micronutrients. It's really about a kind of complex biochemistry. And we're trying to essentially flatten that for the sake of our system that we've built. I know that before I, I remarked that when you're picking, you're not really listening to music, no podcast, oh, uh -huh. nothing. What are some of the big things or big ideas that you're thinking about? <laughs> oh, that, that's I, the one thing I would say I've noticed like over the course of even just knowing you from the last like maybe hour and a half, two hours, it's like, oh, there's a lot of like interesting things that you're thinking about mm -hmm. that maybe are personal. Maybe it's more the whole like vein of farming in general and like how I guess our sort of global culture and society interacts with the, the world of farming and our expectation around food. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, like sometimes it's not like I'm consider myself a very profound thinker but I think that to be farming and have the liberty to farm the way that I'm have the opportunity to for me is just one of the great gifts is that it feels like this real invitation into like a really different cosmology like you're just at a different pace time moves really differently when you're on the farm you get an invitation to just like pay attention and so sometimes it's like just trying to be as present as possible and like quiet my mind to just notice like all the things and all the lives that are being lived in this space. But certainly it's like also really repetitive work. And so I still have a tendency to just zone out or try to think about, you know, any number of what's happening in the world mm -hmm. or personal life. I try to not really read the newspaper in the morning yeah. just because it feels really distracting or distressing. Every morning when you wake up and you come here, you mentioned that you're you're always very grateful and you're excited. Like, what are the things that bring excitement to this process and just being mm. on the fields? I mean, just seeing the fact that, like, things are so dynamic, things change so quickly. And so being kind of busy every single day, this time of year especially, it's like this kind of turning point in the season. And we've kind of just surpassed kind of the crest of our production where everything is kind of at its optimal peak so now you just see things progressing to like wanting to make their seeds and set themselves up for their next generation the days are shortening again so again it's just kind of like you get to just really pay attention and be sort of devoted to like you know two acres it's very small but you could just notice like something i appreciate that i think is just as any organic farmer can kind of think about is just Sometimes we'll see like a lot of different pests. Like right now, all the tomato fields in our area just got harvested and mowed under. So there's this explosion of white fly, which is a, a pest related to that type of tomato culture. So now a lot of our plants are covered in these white flies because they've lost their habitat and food source. So they've migrated. But even though it's slightly stressful because they can have a negative impact on plants, I also, after all this time, know that 
even though there's a surge of them right now, it's only a matter of time till I see like another insect population pop up because their food source has now arrived. Mm. And so getting to kind of see cyclical things and to know that when I was younger, I would get so stressed out and I try to like fix what I perceive to be the problem. And now I just feel like I'm not the only one responsible for that problem and the only one responsible to fix it. And after years of like spraying like little homemade insect remedies or deterrents, and then finally knowing that it just takes the arrival of like ladybugs and mantises, has just been a nice shift. The one point that Kristen made really opened my eyes to an alternative way of thinking. The attempt to forcefully solve a problem in farming can result in unexpected and unintended outcomes elsewhere. Instead, a better approach is to simply improve and prepare as best as you can, knowing this season's crops are part of what will hopefully be an infinite number of seasonal yields. One thing that you mentioned in the world of farming, it's like it's something that you aim to do year after year, season after season. So how does that sort of reflect on, I guess, how you look at things around you? Because it's not about, oh, I'm going to get the best harvest Mm-hmm. And I'm going to try to improve upon it. It's more about that consistency and that long-term approach. I think a lot of people get caught up in exponential growth or always growing at this unsustainable rate. But farming itself, like, I guess there's obviously a lot of things where that come into the mix. But like, from your perspective, it seems like it's more about aiming to do things right, mm-hmm. sustainable, and continue this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that because we do a fair amount of just like seed saving and in that process of seed saving we're always trying to you know select for the best kind of plants in a population can you maybe explain seed saving for those that aren't familiar yeah i mean it's just um the practice where most of our vegetable crops are annual and so they have a phase where they're growing vegetatively or maybe fruiting and then they will be trying to mature that seed and so instead of buying new seed from year to year from another company we just save all of our own seeds. And with that, it's like those plants, it does end up being reflected in their genetic code, this kind of like attunement to those farming practices. Mm -hmm. For us, like seed saving is just like one, very practical because we don't have to buy more. And two, it's just affects us in a number of ways just because it means that the plants we see doing the best, if we save the seeds from that, it means that next generation kind of will most likely be able to thrive uh, in our conditions better mm-hmm. uh, than maybe plants that didn't. And so it encourages you to think for the long term, too, to think of your other question, because there's sometimes there will be like a disease or a pest pressure when you're seed saving in some ways, like a negative stimulus can be still a positive thing in the long run, because if you have a large enough population and you see 50 percent of them die, but 50 percent of them live you can just sort of be curious about why that other 50% mm. made it when the other ones didn't. Yeah. And so through saving that seed, you can start to distill down. Um, so it lets me make different decisions too that I think other farmers, it's it's so much pressure when you have to monetize row by row. And if I put melons in and then I start seeing, you know, cucumber beetles or something, if I know I have to make X amount of dollars from those melons, I might want to spray something or try to kill the cucumber beetles. You get caught in that sort of trap Mm -hmm. because then it's like, 
you're doing an action that will prompt action on the part of this other species like cucumber beetles then will have no choice but to evolve mm -hmm. you know because they have the will to live but if you let your melons kind of be a little stressed out if you take the hard road and tr just forfeit a bountiful crop in the long run like what you're forcing is your melons to evolve rather than the insect Do you think that most people understand how much work goes into farming? How do you think our relationship with food would change if they understood the work, the amount of work that goes into it? I would like to think that people's sort of hearts and minds could change if they did work a whole day on a farm. Um, and I think it's, you know, there's a fairly romantic notion of what it's like to run a small family farm. And just through the years of even working on other people's farms and working with other people, like young people who are kind of curious about going into this industry, it, it is sobering pretty fast once you actually get out there and see that it's not all just kind of like romantic Instagram pictures of like being around pretty plants and eating delicious food. It's, um, yeah, just being beholden to do something, whether you feel like it that day or not. If you're not feeling well, if you want to stay out late, it's like your life is really governed by your farm. So I think even just talking with Dennis and the you know, the Lee brothers and staff at NAMU, you know, people who work with food all the time, who have a deep understanding of food in their respective ways, they still got to learn a lot by seeing and volunteering on the farm um, and just seeing really what went into that. So what's your exact relationship with NAMU? Um, so we partner with them. Pretty much all of the produce that I grow goes to NAMU and they figure out how to feature it. It's like a huge portion of just the vegetables that they serve in their restaurants. Most importantly, when I met them, it was uh, about just kind of more creative spark between us all, I think. And just thinking that in terms of each of our individual visions, there was like a place where that could yeah. come together. What does it mean when you have a restaurant that you know this stuff <laughs> behind me has a place to go versus mm -hmm. the uncertainty of like, oh, I need to bring this to a market and see mm -hmm. if someone will buy it. Does it change the way you grow, how the farm is, is operated? Yeah, definitely. Because it's like two acres, I think sounds small, but it's actually quite a lot of space. And there's a lot of food that you can grow within that space. And so I think for me, it's like within these two acres, it's highly diversified. We have grown, you know, anywhere between like 60 and 80 different crops each year. So within that, like it's let us take risks, like what I mentioned before, of being able to work from a place of more curiosity. Like if something starts to go wrong, we don't have to attack the problem in a way that only prioritizes short term outcomes. Like we can see and not always is it that linear, but sometimes you can just prioritize the long term mm. uh, consequence. And I think that comes from just like knowing that because of how diversified we are, we can take a certain amount of calculated risks because we'll we'll just certainly have enough food to bring them mm -hmm. um, because we have so many varieties that even if, you know, two or three crops go downhill, we still have just so much other stuff to supplement it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that I think that just that diversity in general is good as a farmer. The risk sharing has been good. And just sometimes it's like, we're growing a lot of things that are like Korean heritage crops and crops just kind of important to East and Southeast Asia. 
I think that even though the Bay Area is so diverse, when you're working with crops that don't already have a ton of established markets, like it can be slower to grow that business. Mm -hmm. And so I think with Namu, the thing that's been great is like they're just willing to try anything. And they're so talented and creative that even if they're not familiar with an ingredient, they can like taste it and think about it and figure out uh, what to do with it. So I think that that can help really shine a light on ingredients that are maybe specific to different ethnic communities, but kind of give them this nice stage to talk about their history, but also just kind of provide them in an interesting context. Yeah. As a Korean-American adoptee raised in Long Island, New York, Korean food didn't factor into Kristen's life growing up. It was only after heading over to Washington State where she really began to embrace and understand Korean ingredients and cuisine. This bond has provided an opportunity to connect with her culture in a way that is approachable, but with a lot of complexity and nuance as you go deeper. I guess the way that I view the farm itself, there's a, a very deep, philosophical like thought process behind what you're trying to do here and you know what you just mentioned there about different ethnic crops or whatnot mm -hmm. what are things that you want people to pull away from and experience with this farm not necessarily being here but maybe mm -hmm. trying something that came from the farm or going through namu as like a medium to try mm -hmm. things they had never tried before yeah i mean i think that well one the most exciting thing to me is like having now built some korean community around the farm like the way people would light up to kind of like see these crops growing. And for me, I didn't grow up with a lot of these crops. I learned about them once I was already a farmer and once I was interested in growing these plants. But when people sort of, it brings up a lot of nostalgia or sentimentality, that has been probably the most compelling thing that I'm like, oh, people just really love these things because it's really tied to their memories or fondness for family and traditions um, so that's been the most exciting thing I think then also to see it not be held in just like a really static form like Namu being really innovative is exciting because even if something's familiar to you or not they're usually presenting it in a way that's still kind of innovative and interesting um, so I think everybody gets to have this process you know maybe something that's a little bit more esoteric is just thinking about conversations I've had with different types of Asian Americans. You know, for me, being an adoptee, I was like, there's always a tension for me of like, what makes me Korean? Sometimes when I've talked to people about that, whether they're adopted or just like second or third generation, there is just always that slight tension that you're holding. That's been the remarkable thing to think about, like the opportunity that food presents is that you don't have to have everything just enshrined in that tradition and think that tradition is only one thing. So to give people room to not essentialize their experience or try to just create a box that this is how you fit into this mold, but to kind of loosen that grip a little bit and let things be dynamic has been a good opportunity where people get to see these crops, you know, in and out of a certain context and then, uh, those crops are adapting to a new place, so it kind of gave us all license to like also adapt to that new yeah, place. Yeah. 
what is something about the farming world that you wish more people knew about? Hmm. I mean, I think that in some ways it's, I understand how, you know, like living in this part of California, the cost of living is so expensive. And I do believe that food access needs to really be addressed because food insecurity is such a problem. But the hard thing is that in a lot of ways, the onus is on farmers to figure out ways to kind of like farm in a way that's really responsible in relationship to climate change and farm in a way that is really good in our labor practices and stop being so exploitative towards the workforce that grows your food. And at the same time, to have food be really accessible or cheap. And I think those things don't really actually all work together. So for me, it's just really hard where people are so conscientious um, and there's so many challenges, but people don't really understand that in rural communities, it's like you're experiencing the same things. Like land access is so challenging for farmers. Um, you look at who owns land in this country versus who leases land to grow food and and there's a lot of stark disparities. So I think it's just, there's just a lot more complexity. Yeah, just the sheer economic challenge of having a small a small farm that I wish people took a little bit more time to really understand mm -hmm. that it's not farmers just being greedy or wanting to only serve like what are considered more upper and middle class markets. A lot has to just sort of shift in terms of consumers who are able to kind of prioritize it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. What do you think would happen if the cost of the food we bought in the grocery store actually started to increase in price? Do you think there actually is some sort of relationship between our ability to like, what would that market look like? Mm -hmm. Would there be less food wastage? Would there be more opportunity for farmers? Mm -hmm. Like, what does that look like? Like, do we need to value food more is, I guess, what I'm trying to get Yeah, get I mean, I think we do need to value food more, but it just seems like there needs to be probably multiple points of things lifted at the same time, because even just with climate change, with what's happening right now, like, the cost of food is going up, but it's still just the way that those impacts affect communities differently is so rooted in, you know, your economic status and class. And that has to do so strongly with your race. And so it's like, if we don't want that to continually be devastating and this type of violence towards the people that are most kind of vulnerable in our society, there's just multiple levers, I think, that have to be pulled at the same time. Because I'm like, I think if the price of food just went up to accurately reflect it, um, but other things didn't shift, then for the most part, we would just experience like more exacerbated like hunger and mm. public health disparities, which I think would be devastating. So I don't know. Yeah, the solution seems so complicated to try to parse out, but food costs are going to go up just because of the cost of fuel and the insecurity around just like peak oil. And if industrial agriculture like keeps consolidating the way it is, even if food prices go up, it doesn't mean that that price ends up going to like better wages for workers. It might just mean it's creating a further wealth divide in terms of who owns those corporations. Before you set out to be a farmer, what did you think it'd be like and what has been the reality? <laughs> My parents joke around that even when I was growing up in New York, when I was a kid, I told them I wanted to be a farmer and they thought it was very weird. When I was younger, I think when I thought about it, 
yeah, I probably just had a very all-American sort of version in my mind. I was like, I'm going to have pigs and I'm going to have a grain silo. And yeah, and so I guess as that sort of evolved, I guess I didn't realize how much it would be personally transformative. Like I just thought like, oh, I like to do this. This is what I have done. This is what I'm capable of doing for work. But I don't think I realized how much, yeah, it would kind of just change all parts of like my belief system and relationship to processing just like yeah my personal life and connect with other people so yeah i think probably everything is much more affected than i thought after it was all said and done i picked up a bucket of fresh herbs destined as gifts for that evening's unexpected connections dinner i made the commute back into the city what became clear was that in the face of a scale-focused world there is room for small intimate purveyors such as Kristen and Namu Farm who provide their take on farming. It goes far beyond just putting out the cheapest food possible while being aware of the broader social and economic issues at hand. Namu Farm and Kristen are steeped heavily in the idea that putting food on the table can be just as much about the story as it is sustenance. If you made it this far, here's a part of the interview where Kristen describes some of the crops they grow, including my favorite crop to hate, bitter melon. What are the types of crops you grow here? Yeah, there's like three in perilla. We oh, grow, shiso, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. We have a couple different kinds of perilla, like a Japanese variety, a Korean red leaf variety, the kind of classic Korean one, uh, bitter melons, yard long beans. Who eats bitter melon in the U.S.? <laughs> um, who eats bitter melon in the U.S.? I would say mostly Asian people. Over the um, age of 60. Over the age of 60. <laughs> but some people, I think if they grew up with it, they really love it. I don't mind it. it. I don't mind bitter melon. Yeah. I I didn't grow up eating it, but I really like it now. And honestly, because it, uh, the quinine in it is related to kind of diabetes prevention and yes. treatment. It has been getting a lot more attention, just even dried as like a tea. And I heard you aren't supposed to have medication and bitter melon at the same time because it might yeah. be too extreme. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite potent. Yeah. Um, but I think it for should that be reason, when it tastes yeah. like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not joking around. Yeah, yeah, popcorn. There's all these behind you is just like a quarter acre of just soybeans, uh, cucumbers, melons. Well, thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, thank you for coming out.